Hello everyone, I'm your host Jess. Welcome back to True Crimes Untold. Hello, 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 beautiful people. How are you guys? Thanks for joining me. Happy Sunday. I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. That's like my little tagline. I think I have said that pretty much every episode except for like the first few. So I'm going to just say this now. It is mine. Don't use it. (laughs) I am claiming it. So I will come after you. Just saying. I have a few things I want to talk about before I jump into this episode. First thing is, thankfully you can't see me right now. Um, you would laugh at what I look like. It's it's laughable. Usually I'm very matchy-matchy when it comes to like my coziness, my PJs. I have sets, okay? But for some reason, I decided to put on like a half-decent, half-dressy tank top which is not like me at all. And my bottoms are Christmas PJs that are like two or three sizes too big because they are JRs. It looks ridiculous. I have no idea why I put these things together. I mean, it is comfortable, but it is um, very not flattering at all. So thankfully you can't see me. And now the second thing I want to talk about is how fucked up this weather is. One day it's 78, the next day it's 28. So any of you out there who do not believe in um, just like the planet changing, climate control, open your eyes. We are setting records with these temperatures. Like every year, every winter, every summer, we are setting new records um, and it should not be happening this fast. I I just have to talk about it because it honestly is like Luna is so depressed. All she wants to do is play outside. We were excited. We got a few days of warm weather and now she's She can't because it's like under 30 degrees and it's just way too cold. So she's miserable, which I don't blame her. Now, last but not least that I want to talk about is a little interesting tidbit that I learned. So I'm just going to read you this little article that I have pulled up on my phone right now. Researchers at Boston University in Massachusetts have found that during sleep, the fluid present in the brain and spinal cord called the cerebral spinal fluid washes in and out like waves and it helps the brain get rid of any type of trash or toxins that you brought in during the day while you were awake. How fucking cool and interesting. I never knew that. I'm assuming Maybe none of us really knew that up until just recently or the last maybe couple of years. Um, But yeah, just I thought that's really neat. So that's why like maybe if you see somebody who's like, ugh, I only got three, five hours of sleep that maybe they 
don't look too great. They definitely feel like shit. It's because they didn't let those fluids move in and out of their brain. Yeah, so I'm basically a scientist now trying to, you know, tell you these types of things. (laughs) All right, done with my babble bullshit. Let's get into this episode. Just like two weeks ago, this is another one um, that I just haven't really covered before because it is an unsolved case. It is still unsolved to this day, which definitely drives me crazy. I always want to give you a solved case. Just that way, we all know then that there was some type of justice done for these victims and for their families. And for this for this case, they're never necessarily was. Maybe there was. We're going to we're going to see how you feel. I know how I feel. I'll tell you at the end and I would love you to tell me what you think. I am going to start this with a disclaimer because this is probably one of the worst crimes that Oklahoma has ever witnessed. And I agree. I mean, not that I know too many things that happen in Oklahoma, but I don't know how you can beat. Not that you want to beat. What the fuck am I saying here? I should just get into it. I'm like tongue twisting myself. So I just haven't heard anything in that area so horrific as this. So let me give you a disclaimer before we start. First of all, of course, this episode is going to and does contain adult language. It also contains sexual assault, rape, and murder against young children. If you don't want to hear something like that, hey, I totally get it. I would just go ahead and skip past this episode and I will give you a few seconds here to do that. This is the story of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. This story begins in 1977 at a 400-acre camp called Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. It was a camp for young girls, and they would come from all over the state. Their ages ranged from around 8 to 12 years old, and for some of them, it was their first time ever being away from their homes and their parents. It was the summer of 1977, and camp started in June. The parents would drop off their children at the Camp Scott headquarters, and buses would take them to the campsite where they could spend time getting to know the camping area and the cabins that they would be staying in. No one could have known what was going to happen on the very first night that they all arrived. The campers would get split up into groups, usually four girls in each group, and that's who you stayed in your cabin with. At this campsite, there were eight cabins. Cabin number one was for the counselors, and cabins two through eight were for the campers. Cabin eight is the furthest tent away from cabin one, and it's completely out of view, being blocked off by a building that has a kitchen and storage area. One of the parents had actually made a comment that cabin eight seemed so desolate that even as an adult, they wouldn't want to stay in it. Three young girls would be staying together in cabin eight. Michelle, who was nine, Denise was 10, and Lori, the youngest of the three, was only eight at the time. Lori was excited for camp. She was super adventurous and wanted to be included in everything. 
Lori's mom was hesitant to let her daughter go to camp at first because of how young she was, but over time she started to give in. Lori was choosing between two camps that she wanted to go to that summer, either Girl Scout camp at Camp Scott or a camp that was being held by the Y. Lori didn't care which camp she went to, she just wanted to go. It was Lori's mom's decision for her daughter to go to Camp Scott. There was no real reason, it was just the one she chose, and it was a decision that she would regret for the rest of her life. Denise had a much harder time deciding if she wanted to go to camp. She was a mama's girl, and she would get homesick anytime she tried to stay somewhere else, and her mom would go pick her up when Denise would call and say she wanted to come home. Denise's mom was shocked when Denise told her that she wanted to go. She told Denise that they had been down that road before, but Denise promised her that it would be different this time. So, her mom agreed. She thought, maybe her daughter is just starting to grow up and becoming braver. But the day before camp, Denise starts to worry and she asks her mom if she has to go. Since Denise begged for weeks, her mom said, no, you are going, and even up to the moment that Denise was being dropped off, she still was asking to go home. Her mom told her, listen, we are here, I paid for you to come, spend one night, and if you still want to leave after that, then I will come pick you up. Denise got out of the car and took the bus to the campsite, and that was the last time her mom would see her alive. These parents had no idea that just two months before they were dropping their kids off at Camp Scott, that there was a training session being held there, and the session came to a stop when one of the counselors noticed that their cabin had been rummaged through. They found a handwritten note that had a very chilling message on it. It said, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one, end quote. Alongside this message was a picture drawn of a stick figure hanging from a tree. The note was not taken seriously, and it was dismissed by everyone. There was also talk on the note about aliens, so the counselors thought this must be some crazy person, and nothing was ever done about it. When the girls first arrived at camp, there was initially a fourth girl that was placed with them to stay in cabin 8. It was a girl named Angela, and she was moved to cabin 8 after finding out that the original cabin she was supposed to stay in had no more room. The four girls put their belongings in cabin 8, and they started to get to know each other as they sat and talked around a bonfire. Just as they were getting comfortable and becoming fast friends, one of the counselors came over and told Angela that there was actually room for her now if she wanted to bunk with her original troop, and that's what Angela decided to do. She grabbed her things and moved them back to the other cabin. She would say in later interviews that she still could not figure out why she was the one that got spared. The girls got settled in and one of them needed to use the latrine, so they all went together. As they were walking, they noticed three flashlights that turned on and started to come towards them. The girls screamed and the flashlights disappeared. They got back to their cabins and the weather took a turn for the worse, so the counselors told the girls to stay inside. Everyone in cabin 8 decided to write letters home to their parents, telling them how their first days went. In Denise's letter, she tells her mom that she was right. She did not want to be there and she did not want to stay for the next two weeks. No one knows exactly what happened after the girls finished writing their letters, but what we do know is that one of the counselors noticed a dim light out in the woods by the tree line that surrounds the camp. 
Since no one was supposed to be out there, the counselor grabbed her flashlight and pointed it through the trees, and as soon as she did that, the dim light turned off. She watched and waited for a while, and the dim light came back on and started to move northwest towards Kiowa, closer to where the girls were at. Later that same night, a counselor in Kiowa was awoken to a loud, strange noise. It was like a horrible grunting sound, but it was hard for the counselor to explain because she said it didn't sound like any human or animal she's ever heard before. She woke up the other counselor in her tent to ask if she could hear it, but she was too tired and out of it to care. So she grabbed her flashlight and ventured out of the cabin to go investigate because she thought it sounded like something or someone was in pain. As soon as she takes a few steps and turns on her flashlight, the noise suddenly stops and it becomes completely quiet. She does a lap around the tents, but everything is quiet, nothing seemed out of place, so she went back to bed. That same night, just a few tents away in cabin six, the girls say someone approached their tent with a flashlight but never came in. At the time, the girls thought it was a counselor, but they would later learn that no counselor went up to their tent that night. That light slowly moved from cabin six and then stopped again at cabin eight. The next morning, the counselor that had been up late from the night before was waking up early to shower before all the campers woke up. She grabbed her towel and her shower bag and heads to the building that holds the showers. As she was walking up the road, she notices something out of the corner of her eye, and it's a sleeping bag. Her first thought was the buses dropped off more luggage that didn't get picked up from the night before, even though it was an odd place to leave it. She walks over to the sleeping bag, and she realizes that it's completely full. When she looks inside, she finds the body of a very young girl and the little girl is dead. Immediately, she runs to notify the camp owners as a small group of people begin to crowd around the area. This is when they realize that there are two other girls that are missing from the cabin. Several yards away, counselors find two more sleeping bags and just like the first one, there are two more small bodies in the bags. The first responders on the scene said the sleeping bags were so small and the girls were curled up so tight, it was hard to believe there could even be a body inside. The Highway Patrol and the State Bureau got to the scene and all three girls were pronounced dead. As the crime scene was being processed, investigators hear multiple stories from counselors and campers about the lights they were seeing throughout the night, and it became clear that someone snuck in through the back of the tent and struck the children. Michelle and Lori were killed inside the tent while Denise was taken into the woods and then killed. Rope and tape were used to bind her hands behind her back, and there was also a sewn gag that was used on some of them. After the girls were killed, the killer moved their bodies 100 yards away from the tent, and this was done sometime between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., Investigators know this because the sleeping bags were completely dry, which means they had to have been placed there after 11 when the rain stopped and before 6 when they were found the next morning. They also know that Denise was the last to be murdered. When the girls were found, Michelle and Lori were already cold and rigor mortis had started to set in. Denise was still warm. After the murders, the killer went back to the tent and attempted to wipe the tent floor with mattress covers and towels, and then those items were stuffed into the sleeping bags with the girls and then carried to the locations where their bodies were found. 
All three girls showed signs of sexual assault, and there were swabs taken from Denise and Michelle that had semen. There were no swabs taken from Lori, but an officer on the scene said that when he saw her body, it was clear to him that she had been sexually assaulted. Her underwear had been pulled very far to the side, in a way that he said she would have never worn it. All of the girls showed signs of a brutal beating, strangulation, and mutilation from this monster that attacked them in the middle of the night. While investigators were at work on the crime scene, camp employees worked hard to move all the children. Angela, the young girl who was supposed to be in cabin 8 that night, said, quote, They told us something was wrong with the camp water, and we were going back early. We were pretty bummed, end quote. The girls had no idea of what really happened, and no one told a lot of them for a really long time, and most of the counselors and campers that did know suffered from traumatic PTSD, even still to this day. All of the girls were bused back to the Camp Scott headquarters, where each child was escorted off the bus one by one when their names were called. Angela said when her name was called, she accidentally dropped something, so it took her a few extra minutes to get off the bus, and when she finally did, she saw her mom waiting for her, and she was down on her knees just crying. The parents had seen on the news that something bad had happened, but they were given very little information, so they just went to pick up their children. They waited anxiously, hoping to see their child walk off that bus. Michelle's parents learned about the murders from the television, and when they got a call from the camp on that same day, they knew they were about to receive the worst news that they ever have. Lori and Denise's parents also received phone calls from the camp, but the parents were not the first calls that the camp would make that day. The first people that were contacted were the camp's lawyers and the camp's insurance agencies. When the camp owners finally do call the parents, they only tell them that there had been an accident, and it isn't until much later that they find out the horrific truth of what actually happened to their children. Denise's mom told a story about Denise's younger sister, Kathy, and a premonition that she thinks she had of what was about to come, even though she really had no idea what she was feeling since Kathy is only five. She said the day she dropped Denise off at camp, Kathy starts asking her mom, what happens when people die? Denise's mom explains that people die and then more people are born and it keeps the world going. Kathy then says, what if everybody dies? And again, she reassures Kathy that that won't happen all at once, that more babies will be born and the world will go on. Kathy responds with, well, tomorrow everybody's going to die. Her mom thinks that Kathy probably doesn't even understand what she's saying since she doesn't even fully understand death. And this is just weird kid talk. Until the next day when she finds out that her daughter and two other young girls were murdered. At the coroner's office, investigators are learning that so much excessive force was used on these little girls. And they said it was especially striking seeing Lori. They will never forget opening her tiny bag and seeing her in there. Even though she had been strangled and hit, her face had not been damaged, and they said it looked like she was just asleep and was going to wake up any second. As the investigator watched the coroner perform each autopsy, he hoped and prayed that at least just one of the girls hadn't been sexually assaulted, but as we know, all three of them likely were. 
investigators had very little to go on, and the small amount that they did have was confusing. At the scene, they found a red flashlight, a crowbar, nylon rope, and duct tape all sitting next to where the bodies were found. Investigators also noticed that cabin 8 wasn't the only cabin that their perpetrator went into that night. There were multiple other tents that had been rummaged through, and some of the counselors were missing their eyeglasses. As the search continues at the 400-acre camp, the eyeglasses were found scattered throughout the area. Investigators wondered if the perpetrator was looking for a pair that would be closest to their prescription and left the ones behind that didn't work. Why else would this person steal eyeglasses from tents and then randomly distribute them throughout the crime scene? It just didn't make sense, unless it's some kind of weird fetish. Investigators quickly linked some of the evidence that was found to some of the local people that lived in the area. They found out that the nylon rope came from a farmhouse that was in the area, but the farmer insists that he had been robbed and there were more items that were stolen from his farm. He passed the lie detector test, but the media was already on the story. Newspapers ran a front page article that read, quote, lie detector given in Girl Scout slain, end quote, and then it continued with a picture of the farmer that read Slayer above it. He was receiving harassing phone calls one after the other, and it mentally broke this man, and he ended up being hospitalized. Police did believe that the farmer didn't have anything to do with it, and passing the lie detector test only confirmed that. Days and days went by, and police didn't have any leads on who their suspect was, so they were desperate to try anything. It started with tracking dogs, and the owner was sure that they could close the case within 48 hours. They also experimented with Native American rituals to help guide them. The Native American culture ends up playing a heavy part in this case. During a command staff meeting, the police mentioned that a Cherokee man named Gene Hart had escaped from prison just four years prior in 1973, and that he's still at large in the area. Gene was actually a local football hero in the area until 1966, when he kidnapped two pregnant women, forced them into his car, tied them up with nylon rope and duct tape, and then sexually assaulted both of them. There was one strange detail that made police believe that Gene was their guy. One of the women said that while Gene was raping her, he was making these incoherent sounds. She tried to explain or give a comparison to what the noise sounded like, but she had no comparison. She had never heard anything like it before. Police wondered if these could be the same noises that woke up the counselor at Camp Scott the night of the murders. The other victim that Jean attacked told police that he actually took her glasses and was trying them on. When Jean was done attacking both women, he placed a rag in their mouth, wrapped up their entire faces with duct tape so they couldn't breathe, and then left them in the middle of the woods covering them up with leaves. One of the women says that she still doesn't know to this day how she was able to get the tape off her face, that it was a miracle and it saved her life. She testified against Gene and he went to, pr- and went to prison for this crime, but escaped years later. It wasn't long after the command staff meeting when Gene Hart was brought up as a suspect that a cave overlooking Camp Scott was discovered. When police looked inside the cave, it appeared that someone had been living there. They found tape, 
plastic material, women's underwear, newspaper, a picture of a woman that was crumbled up, and a pair of women's eyeglasses. The red flashlight that was found at the crime scene at Camp Scott had a newspaper that was crumbled up and shoved inside to hold the battery in place. The same edition of that newspaper was also found inside the cave. The underwear that was found in the cave ended up belonging to one of the counselors at camp, and the same goes for the eyeglasses that they also found in the cave. The killer took this one pair from the campsite. Police are able to connect these items to the camp, but now they must figure out how all these items are connected to Jean. Police knew that whoever was living in that cave had to have been the one that killed the girls. They say they can prove that Jean was the one living there because of the crumbled up picture of the woman that they found. They place a national ad in all the newspapers across the country looking for the woman in the picture. They end up finding out that this picture had been taken by a local wedding photographer, and the photographer got help from a man in prison to help develop the film. The man in prison was named, can you guess it, Gene Hart. There's a national manhunt for Gene, and when police capture him, he is wearing women's eyeglasses. This only confirms to police that this man must be connected to the crimes. When the officer is interviewing him, he looked Jean straight in the eyes and said, You did it, didn't you? And Jean replies with, You will never pin it on me. When investigators found Jean, he was arrested in a cabin, and in the cabin they found a corncob pipe and a mirror that was also linked to the campsite. When the trial began in March of 1979, there was a large community that believed the police were framing Jean for the murders, and there are many people that still believe that to this day. People said that the items police found in the cabin when Jean was captured were actually planted there by the police. Jean's defense brings up the sperm that was taken from the girls and how it couldn't have come from Jean because he has had a vasectomy. So if he was the killer, he wouldn't have been able to leave sperm. The defense also pointed out that the hairs that were found at the crime scene did look similar to Jean's, but his lawyer fought that you can't compare hairs and prove that they belong to one person just because they look similar. Not only is the defense disputing the physical evidence, but they also say that Jean was framed. The defense has had a jailer testify, and this man said that he saw the crumbled photo of the woman sitting in the sheriff's desk after Jean escaped from prison and before it was ever found in the cave, so he thinks the police did plant it there. Jean's defense attorneys also said that there was a fingerprint found on the flashlight that they don't believe was Jean's, and inside of the tent, there was also a footprint found in blood that was a 9.5 and Jean wore an 11.5 shoe. The last thing his defense used was the evidence police found in the cabin, the corncob pipe, and the mirror. Jean was staying with a friend in the cabin, and the first time police searched, they didn't find either of those items. It wasn't until their second search that they found them, and Sam Pigeon, the man that owned the cabin, testifies as a witness for Jean. Sam said when they were doing the search, those things were never there, and then suddenly, they were. To the defense and Sam, it was obvious that police had planted those items to frame Jean. 
On March 30, 1979, the jury went to deliberate, and 10 days later when they came back out with a verdict, they found Jean Hart not guilty of the murders of Michelle, Lori, and Denise. But he was still arrested and is sent back to prison to finish serving his sentence from when he escaped, and he was given an additional 300 years. Jean ends up having a heart attack while working out and dies in prison. When they did an autopsy on Gene after he died, the coroner found out that his vasectomy never took. This means that Gene could have been the person to leave the sperm. The sperm was sent out for DNA analysis in 2008, but it was too degraded to test. But almost 10 years later, at the end of 2017, it was reported that over $30,000 in donations had been raised to conduct a retest on the DNA, since advancements have grown so much over the decade when it comes to DNA testing. Hopefully one day soon, we will find out who the Oklahoma Girl Scout murderer actually was. And that's the end of the story, because it is still an unsolved case. Like, ah, this is a tough one. Cause like, I feel like obviously, yes, police definitely could have planted evidence. Um, they have definitely done that in the past. Um, I mean, just even the show making a murderer, I think his name is Steve Avery, you know, just look at his situation of having evidence planted on him. I mean, it's just, it was a crazy story as well. But anyway, I'm going to tell you my opinion. I definitely believe that Gene Hart had some involvement in these murders. I also believe that he had some help. I don't think he did it by himself, um, but I definitely think he was involved. Even if maybe some of those things were planted, I'm not saying that's right to, to do that, but there's just so many other coincidences, like his obsession with women's eyeglasses. The things that he did to his victims in the past match up so much with the things that they found at the crime scene at Camp Scott. I mean, there's just too many connections there for him not to be involved, but I would love to hear what you guys think. So please let me know. Do you think Jane Hart did it solely by himself? Do you think that he did it with an accomplice or do you not think he did it at all? That maybe somebody else did commit these murders. Who knows? Maybe somebody did and they went out to commit more crimes, more murders. Ugh, this is why unsolved cases just drive me crazy, but it's good to cover them and just get this information out there again, get this story spreading again. Maybe one day we will get good news that they were able to get a DNA match from the sperm. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Until then, you guys can find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast. I'm on Spotify. Hit the subscribe button and you will get notifications with new episodes. Thank you guys for listening and I will see you in a couple weekends. Bye.